You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, supplemental number 70, the one about Star Trek The Motion Picture, 4K Director's Edition. Welcome into a very special supplemental of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. To be honest, every supplemental episode of Mission Log is special, but for this episode, yeah, it's pretty darn special. No lie. If you've been paying attention and playing the Star Trek home game, as you should, you may have noticed that on April 5th, in celebration of First Contact Day, Star Trek, the motion picture 4K Director's Edition, made its debut on Paramount+. And on today's episode, we have none other than David C. Fine and Darren Dockerman to discuss not only that momentous day, but hopefully many behind-the-scenes stories as well. And just to remind everyone to make sure you get your tickets to see Star Trek The Motion Picture 4K Director's Edition during the exclusive Fathom event on Sunday, May 22nd, Monday, May 23rd, and Wednesday, May 25th. Visit FathomEvents.com for your local listings. So without further ado, here are David C. Fine and Darren Docterman. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Glad to have you with Great us. Great to be here. Good morning. First things <laughs> first, tell us individually about kind of your specific roles on the project, just so we kind of know who we're talking to and, and what your hands did in this uh, director's edition. Well, I'll start out, uh, if you don't mind, Darren. I'm the producer. I went to the studio after so many years of doing the original with Robert Wise and Darren and Mike Medicino. We, I returned to the studio after you know so many years. We've, we've on and off gone back to the studio to get the film, the director's edition finished in film quality, which was always our original goal. But after so many years, finally around the 40th anniversary, I was able to speak to them. And I, I worked and made the project, uh, as a producer, made the project happen by communicating with the studio for, God, it was three years to get the project going again. And worked out the budget and arranged for the project and finally got the green light. And then I brought everybody back into the, the, to the project once we actually had the funding and had the project going was able to say okay guys now we have the budget let's make the project happen and i also spent a number of years working with robert wise after we finished the project and we had spoken about the the, his goals and what our expectations were when we would get to do this and bob had me promise at his coffee uh, his kitchen table which is kind of funny that I'd make sure that we did get it finished for film because when we did the director's edition originally, that was actually the test bed to show them what we were going to do on film and then make sure that the we would go back after we're finished to say, hey, here's what we're going to do. And of course, at the time, DVD was the the, the cash cow for the studio, the, 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 what made the studio money. So they were quite happy with that and didn't see the practical reason to make a film element because the quality was satisfied for DVD. Anyway, that's not my introduction. That's just how we got here. So <laughs> I'm going to come back to that. We're going to talk budget right. and all of that stuff too. So yeah. Bob and I spoke about a lot of different things. So I guided the the goals this time in getting it to be the best that it could be using the latest technology based on those conversations. So I was guiding the direction we were moving in this this year, this time, while we're also making sure that the integrity of everything we did originally was intact. So I was the guiding creative force in regard to the newest, um, uh, the color and the, the sound and the directions we were moving in. And Darren was brilliant with the with bringing the visual effects up to the to the gorgeous level that they were. But let's let Darren tell. Yeah. I, I was uh, I was responsible for bringing all the visual effects up to the gorgeous. No, wait. As if my own words um, uh, on this, uh, you know, 21 years after we did the original version on DVD, we've we've all been uh, sort of trying to make it uh, make it final and bring it to its uh, its uh, you know ultimate goal which was as dave said film resolution and we obviously tried to preserve as many of the uh, original elements and original setups that we could from the original project and that's that was an amazing task in itself 
in addition to uh, uh, sort of overseeing all the visual effects for the project, uh, I, I uh, you know, got to do some myself, and uh, I was able to oversee and collect a group of uh, uh, visual effects artists, uh, a lot of them who were on our project originally, and uh, some, uh, you know, encouraging newcomers. And I have to say that uh, even in the restrictions of not being under one roof and having our crew dispersed over the globe, I, I think it turned out pretty darn good. And the uh, challenges on this one were slightly different than before because we obviously had a distinctive roadmap to follow, you know, based on, uh, you know, Robert Wise's uh, intent from 2001. And luckily, we also had the guidance and ear of uh, Douglas Trumbull, who uh, was always a big supporter of this project and, uh, and us. And uh, he, uh, he was the one who said, you know, you want to make sure that, uh, that the studio uh, at least looks for the original 65 millimeter and, uh, and VistaVision elements, because they exist. I, I think they do. And uh, he uh, he said, have him find it, and you'll be able to uh, do recompositing on the original elements. And that was uh, that was an amazing uh, amazing uh, bit of guidance. And uh, we uh, we found as many as existed, and it was a it was a lot for the fans out there that have been clamoring for like the best possible presentation of the motion picture on its 40th anniversary, say in 2019, and I know that there wasn't a specific official announcement for this is going to happen, was was the 40th anniversary always the target? And then you decided to say, we're going to make it the best possible version of this film as we can, let the technology help us, let all of the elements that we discover help us? Or was this something that, you know what, it just takes as long as it takes? And the fans were just going to have to understand. And then at the end, the quality is going to exonerate kind of like missing, say, a major, uh, a major anniversary date. Well, it took, it took a lot of time just to figure out where the funding would come within the studio. And I, I had to look at a number of the requirements that the project had. It's not a small effort, this project. Mm-mm. And... When I came in, it was basically when I first started. I've spoken to the to the studio a number of times over the years. It's been a long time, obviously, but there are a lot of things had to go had to align. Much of it was computer technology had to evolve to the point where I knew it wasn't a a many million dollar endeavor that the studio would back. It wasn't before, even though the film has a lot of uh, 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 respect. It just wasn't something that I saw that they were actively wanting to invest that much so much money millions and millions of dollars to get it to be where it would be where it needed to be so the visual so the uh, computer technology needed to come to a point where we're able to manage it a lot more to keep the quality where it needs to be for example when we did it originally in standard definition we were able to do that because the computers could handle standard definition i think darren you'd agree with me that that i think in a way we're now at a point in 4k where we were 20 years ago in regard to being able to, to do a lot of the, in, a lot of the work digitally. In the sense of, uh, you know, uh, ability to, ability to ma- manipulate the files and, uh, and yeah. easily relatively, yeah, churn out uh, shots. Absolutely. So I think that, 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 between the time that it took to get the technology up to uh, where it needed to be, in addition to the, the discoveries and, and the evolution of, of film elements and film technology where we could get the color uh, HDR out of film and uh, Dolby Atmos, it also, everything became in sync where it made it so that it was also the best time to do it. So... While I bemoan the fact that it was 20 years to get the where we are, it certainly benefited from that to, to, to reach this level. 40th anniversary was a hope, but it, things don't move that I think, quickly I think to be able to just... Another factor in there, and I may be uh, telling tales out of school, but I think the studio was going through a lot of uh, structural uh, readjustment after the refusion between uh, Viacom and CBS 
uh, I think that had some uh, some bit to do with it that they had to sort of sort out their house uh, before they could uh, before they could give this the green light. And I think that had a lot to do with it as well. It, it was actually interesting because um, I haven't really thought that about that much, Darren. But but uh, you're right. When I first started talking to them at the, around the 40th anniversary, it still was CBS who had the license for who owned Star Trek and Paramount that didn't. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about doing something for Paramount that would then still have to be part of that license. And it's interesting that the other other thing that ended up finally getting the money for this is the same thing that, that Star Trek has always been responsible for. And that's when Phase 2 came out. They were originally going to launch a Paramount network at that time. And when Next Generation came out, that was syndication. And, they, and when Voyager came out, that was uh, the UPN network was, was starting. That, that Star Trek has almost always been used by a Viacom or Paramount, in this case, as the launching spot for some new network. And in this case, the, the uh, saviors or the, the guardian angels that on our side was the Paramount Plus was now being launched from CBS and Paramount Plus was looking for what can we have that will excite the audiences to sign up for Paramount Plus. And that's where the, the decision finally came to do it for Paramount Plus. Plus, you know, I was always focused that everything that we were going to produce was going to be for film and we were not going to focus on video at all. We were going to go back and our goal was to produce a new negative of the movie, a new digital negative of the movie. So when the question of Paramount Plus came along, streaming services always had that that feeling that it's not a legitimate movie. But we were just living through the pandemic, didn't know how long this was going to happen. And because of the pandemic, legitimate films or quality films were going direct to streaming. So it didn't have that belief that your film isn't as good because it ended up on streaming. So that question came up to me. They said, well, how do you feel about Paramount Plus? And I said, thanks to the fact that it doesn't negate the quality of a project. Sure. I'm happy to take the the money to do. I just want to make sure the movie's done, but just understand we're producing a new negative. And so that this film has the same chance that any other version of the film or any other, other Star Trek films have. So it's that equivalent. And along the line, they said, well, can you do a little bit for, for, can you do the audio mix for home and everything else? But I said, so long as the film comes first. So we have a, a theatrical 5.1, a theatrical Dolby Atmos mix, uh, and then we have the film negative, which is what we did, the, the digital negative, which then we did the, the, the transfer from. See, I love the way this works because you answered the question before I could even ask it. Um, and that was really just trying to figure out, yeah, w- where did that green light come from? With Paramount Plus saying, hey, we have this opportunity to, you know, buoy the, the streaming service a bit by this prestige project that, you know, a lot of old school Trekkies are going to be looking forward to. That gives them their first shot at seeing it. Then you get to roll out Fathom. Then you get to roll out a, uh, a home video release, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a DVD release. So that that's all, excellent, and it's good to hear that they all were that the gates it. had to be open, but Paramount Plus uh, provided yeah. the fuel to push it forward. Well, all right, so let's talk a little bit about going back a bit because David, I, I really, you know, I, you were on uh, with Mission Log years before this even got officially announced uh, when we did a VR chat one time, and you kind of teased at that moment, like, ooh, there might be something coming. We, we kind of have our ducks in a row if we get the green light to do this. Uh, so that, Three that years was a, is a long time. Yeah, yeah, it, it was a, a while back. And I'm, I'm just curious, you know, you, you had this vision in mind, you had this desire to do this. Take us back even further, though, because you worked with robert wise on the uh the first version of the the director's edition and i i wonder if you could tell us a bit you know what were his goals with revisiting the film you know 20 plus years after it had come out and then what more were you both setting out to do this time well obviously bob passed many years ago so it's interesting that we had those conversations about where we were going with it because well first of all the goal was it was not coherent the film just originally was not coherent it was so rushed that even the point of the film and the 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 storyline was cut to the barest minimum 
And it was nothing that Bob really wanted. It was, how can we get a film finished? Michael Eisner was famously quoted as saying that I don't care if there's black leader in the film, it's going out on time. Hmm. And that meant black leader is when you have a space that's usually it's a scene missing on the black leader. Hmm. But um, so anything that they could do to make a, a coherent story go to the theaters is what they had to do. Literally the, the other story is that Bob, the last reel that they had was literally dripping wet with chemicals in a can that he took on an airplane, slept under his, under his bed when he got there in, in Washington, D.C. for the premiere. And then they screened it and it was a mess. And it was a mess that the studio stood behind because they also needed to promote confidence in the picture. So even between the, the premiere and the release date, Bob... And I even believe Gene was in the memo too. They both went to the studio and said, we need to fix little things that just are not right. Can we just do these little tweaks before going to theaters? And the studio said, no, if the word got out that there was any changes, they would say they would, it would destroy the release because we wouldn't have confidence. So they were stuck with what they had. And it never sat well with Bob because mm-hmm. he's a filmmaker that, always starts with a locked script and the script needed to be tight and perfect. And it was the massive rush of this that had him agree for the first time in his career and only time in his career to start a film without the script being finished. And he was not, <laughs> not very comfortable. He wouldn't about talk that. about the film and for 18 years after it came out publicly, wow. no interviews, nothing. And was uh, around that time that, uh, uh, you know, Dave and Mike approached him, and uh, I got involved then to sort of uh, find out from him what, if he could get those extra weeks of post-production, what would he do? Part of it was that George Lucas around the time had also made his special editions, and Bob was reading lots of information about the special editions happening. And he had been approached by Mike, who had worked with worked with him on The Sound of Music, of video releases. And when he was speaking to Mike, he, he finally, you know, Mike had spoken to him about wanting to do something with Star Trek, but Bob wouldn't talk about the project at all. It was reading all of the information on the special editions of the Star Wars films that he finally said, you know, I really think I should talk about, uh, you know, if there's any film that needs this, this is the one. And he also discovered at that time that they had already made a, uh, without, without talking to him, uh, a television version, uh, which included some of the scenes returned to the film that he would have wanted, others that he wouldn't have wanted. But at the same time, they were an unfinished form. And even the studio had embraced the television version so much that that became the new home video release, the special longer version. Mm. So it's kind of interesting that fans who grew up with the film, who did see the beauty in it, but you know couldn't appreciate the story because of the way it was assembled, they either fell in love with it in the theatrical cut or, or, or appreciation of it, or the special longer version. And these carry an important place in their hearts, but... It wasn't until we were able to get Bob to write Sherry Lansing and say, hey, you know, I want to look at changing the film and finishing it after all this time, reopening post, that um, that he finally got a chance to go in and, and really find, uh, with working with us, uh, really fine-tune the film. And um, wonderfully, he's a, he, he knows how to collaborate, and he appreciated the fact that we have a better grasp of, of Star Trek than most people I'd say, and from the creative point, and he collaborated with us and listened to our ideas and, and really allowed us to, to, to fine tune and work this together with him, as opposed to just, you know, letting it go. So it was really wonderful to, to collaborate with those, uh, those decisions. And I feel we really brought our captain back for the film in that edit. So of course, uh, Bob died in two thousand five. So you you fast forward, you know, uh, thirteen fourteen years, and you're gearing up for this project. How do how do you, David, as producer, and then Darren, and anybody else working on this project now? How do you see that? You know, what are your goals, kind of beyond just taking? Okay, here's what Robert Wise approved for two thousand one for that edition. 
what do you do to go beyond that? I mean, obviously, you're being respectful of what came before because you all worked on it and you all kind of got his blessing and go ahead on that project and and his uh, seal of approval on it. But now you fast forward a bit and he's not there. Obviously, you want to get this high resolution digital negative out there to be seen again. But do you also look at it and say, oh, but here's another thing we could also fix or also bring kind of to the next level? Well, I want to go back a moment. As I said, there was a time that we spoke about it. Bob brought me in and we sat down where he had me promise about doing this version. We also discussed a number of other things we wanted to do at the time when we had Richard Klein, the DP, who sat in on the color grading. The thing is, when you're doing color grading on video, which is what we had to do for DVD, you do it at the start of the process. And you take what's there and you do your best to color grade it for you know, so that everything is going to match. And the film video had to be similar to what the scenes were that we were going to put in. So it had to have a simple balance. The original film, they had four days to grade the entire picture. And that's an insane amount of time to do color grading for negative, to do the film in four days. And that's, again, goes back to that rush. Every nuance that they wanted to have and all of the stunning color and how color motivates not only scenes, because the bridge is supposed to change color as it goes through, mm-hmm. but also the feeling where the Klingon cruiser is gritty and not bright and not like every other ship there. And just all of the different color and V'ger's color changes. These were things that were supposed to balance and change considerably in the film. But because we were working in DVD... And again, this the idea was we're going to do a reference and then that would be where we go to film. The idea was let's assemble this the best we can under the circumstances of doing the color at the beginning. Again, other things have to match. Mm-hmm. And then uh, um, finish the, the picture. When we do it on film, you're doing your color grading at right. the end after the film's assembled because you have the negative and you have all of that range. So the idea was to do the color grading at the end and start getting that balance overall. Now, the other thing that's interesting is way back then, I was introduced to a gentleman named John Lowry, who unfortunately has also passed, and he owned a company called Lowry Digital. Hmm. And what John, John was a rocket scientist. He literally, no, no joke, worked for NASA. And if you remember, every moon sh- photo that you see is just incredibly sharp and clean. Yeah. He analyzed uh, cellulite for film. And he, I believe it was he who discovered that there's more information on film than the visual, than the eye can see, or that even the process can see. And he realized at that time, he was taking films like the Star Wars trilogy and taking the visual range that was on film that you couldn't see, the, the, the information, and squeezing it into the visual range. And that's why everything became sharper. But I, what's funny is, is even on motion picture, I was able to give him some things to test to see what he could do for uh, for the film back the fir- during the first time. And it was Bob who said, while we were while I was sitting with him, that he said, "I wonder what would happen if you if if technology progressed to the point where you could see that full range." And it was interesting, and, I, and I'm I'm amazed because he was talking about where HDR is today. Uh-huh. And he uh-huh. said, "If you could do that, and you could have that extra range." That would be amazing. And that's when I had to talk with him about, well, what happens when we do the 4K sometime in the future? We can do that. And he said, look, this is a film about the future. And he's always somebody who embraced new technologies. And he said, don't limit the film by history. Again, this is about the future anyway. But take whatever is possible and whatever exists in the world and make it the best that it can be using every tool available. And that was the goal now was, okay, so now we actually are able to use that range. So we're going to the fact that it can be so incredibly bright. Well, we have a probe on the bridge where people are covering their eyes already. Uh. (laughs) It should have that brightness that goes along with it. And an exciting thing for us is that when we did the grading, that is graded so much higher than our systems can handle today. Because I know in 10 years, we may be able to. And it's funny, as new, brighter levels happen, the probe on the bridge is going to get brighter and brighter and brighter because we graded it that high now. So in the future, the master is going to improve even further. Honestly, it's, it's folks, these guys, 
<laughs> have not seen our notes. I swear. <laughs> I know. I swear. I swear. Yeah. Because literally, like the next question was going yeah. to uh, address. Uh, I, I've, well, let me let me uh, back that up for a second. So I'm going to see this in reverse. I saw it on Paramount Plus streaming, and I am sure that there are quality differences from streaming because you can only stream and process so much information. And I don't have a 4K setup versus an actual 4K setup versus a theatrical presentation, which was the goal. the The plasma probe scene was the only scene in the film that I could tell through streaming. That didn't, for me, in my opinion, didn't match the quality of the reconstruction of the remastering that the rest of the film had prior to that scene and post that scene. Literally, when the when the plasma bolt hit and then the entire contrast obviously went extreme in one direction, there were some background elements that, in, in my opinion, just didn't live up to the expectation of a remastering. But as soon as those elements dropped, as soon as the contrast dropped and Idalia's communicator fell, I mean, her tricorder fell on her seat, everything returned back to normal. The crispness was there. The saturation was there to the end of the movie. Was this something that is um, – have you seen the differences from streaming to theatrical, and is that something that does not sit well with you? Well, it is the best it's going to be as far as we are where where we are today you see one of the one of the highest goals that i had in regard to negative research which by the way the paramount archive did an amazing job transferring our our film elements i mean they transferred everything and they found everything that exists and we had the full log how far back like back to camera negative or uh, everything was camera negative wow we wow. were everything was yeah. camera negative, but there is also a substantial amount of material that doesn't right. exist any, anymore. And uh, I, I may not be completely accurate in this. Just want to say that in advance. But it's my understanding. If I had to guess based upon what what had happened, because I know that some stuff was destroyed, some materials were destroyed. Because the lucky part of this is they do did know that there was a future. So anything that was Again, this is just assumption, okay? Anything that could be used in another feature some at some point was archived or saved. I don't know that there was any conscious decision anywhere, but if it was something that that wouldn't fit into another film, it might have been what was not archived or not, not stored. So my greatest goal, uh, my number one desire was to find the probe on the bridge original camera negative before it went through the mylar adjustment uh-huh. and guess the one thing we could not find oh no but gotcha. yeah. but you were commenting how different it feels look at the theatrical version because it's so much work we spent a month on that yeah. scene itself a separate team all all together that worked specifically on that scene because i always felt that when we got to the probe on the bridge it's almost as if the film if the film stopped another reel of another film came up that was grainy shook different look that that just didn't even have color matching that was put up on the in the film and it goes till the end and then suddenly cut you're back to a normal film and so much work was was put into it to make it match as close as it possibly could just through processing through digital work and cleanup and 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 stabilization there was the point where the where the probe is in the foreground it's moving across the frame and this side shaking a little and this side goes boing literally moves separately and each side was stabilized and it made a big thick probe in the foreground and at uh, even 20 years ago we did the stabilization i remembered thinking well now that thin little probe is thick and it suddenly occurred to me well it's in the foreground so it should be bigger as it goes across the screen this time actually we also made sure that now the dynamic of the um the bridge the distortion it's separated enough so that the bridge actually doesn't squeeze between as it goes across so it still remains the same that's why it's a little thicker but so much work was put into that scene that now the uniforms fit and now i mean the the color fits of the uniform and their flesh tones are so much better that now it's kind of the fact that the that the and that the the grain is gone it's regrained to be even in the film the whole through the whole picture Mm -hmm. but the point here is the way that it looked norman is that 
that was, well, at least this is my, my, my description, that was another byproduct of the probe being on the bridge. Yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. Is that the light in there caused that softness, that whatever, because that's the best that could be seen. But before, it looked wrong. It looked like it, like, because the grain was there, and the grain that doesn't make sense as part of that story. Now that it's balanced, that's just another optical reaction uh, to the fact that there's so much light on the bridge. And when the light's gone, that's when it pops back. And the goal was to try and balance it so that that could be another one of the distortions that's caused by the light, as opposed to feeling like it's a completely different movie. The reality... So I hope that yeah, the, the reality of the situation was that uh, we were constantly trying to figure out how to make the film look the best it possibly can uh, while not having everything to be scanned from camera negative. Uh, and that's a that's a, a, a definite concern, because once you bring in this pristine uh, scanned negative of uh, an element or a uh, or a shot, then that puts into, you know, for lack of a better term, high contrast, the other elements in the film that are not from camera negative. And this was one of those Mm -hmm. cases that, you know, unfortunately, because of various situations and uh, having to do with the fact that the camera negative was projected onto onto a Mylar screen and distorted to get the background element. And then it was re-photographed in an optical printer to add the, the probe, you're looking at like three generations lost there. And so there's no way around it if you don't have the original camera negative. And, you know, part of the reason for that was that the uh, the speed at which everything had to be done back in uh, 1979 uh, and the... the uh, the reality of trying to keep up with all the footage that was used, it, it was just almost insurmountable. And, uh, you know, we were very lucky to get it looking as good as it does. And it looks way better than the theatrical release. Let me ask you both about some of the the sort of favorite areas you got to tweak for this version of the film. And I, I'm going to preload that with one of mine, which is uh, what a revelation it was to sit there at Paramount on uh, April 4th and hear this movie again for the first time since... December of 1979 so much so that I came back and I told Norman I said okay look when this thing drops on Paramount whatever you have to do you know put on headphones whatever dude actually bought a new sound bar I literally <laughs> bought a new yeah. sound system to listen to this movie because the, <laughs> the the sound yeah yeah the sound was tremendous and and I'm think I, I even went back and sort of compared it to other releases whether it was the you know the blu-ray theatrical release or the original director's edition uh, or the original theatrical whatever and hearing like oh wait there are sounds on the bridge that I never heard before here but they really connected me back to the for lack of a better word Star Trekness of this all um, so yeah sound blew me away talk to me about that but talk to me about the other places that just sort of uh, I don't know lifted this movie again for you after 40 plus years. Well, I have to give credit to Mike Medicino. Mike, the other other thing that goes along with what you're saying is, my God, the Dolby Atmos music mix. Mm -hmm. That was Bruce Botnick. And and Bruce was there in 78 uh, recording, recording the music for Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) recording the music for Jerry Goldsmith. And Bruce was his original mixer. So it was wonderful to have him back again to mix for this. And he mixed it into an amazing Dolby Atmos theatrical mix. In other words, it's not a concert. It's a mixing it specifically for the way the film would be presented. He did a fantastic job with with Mike Medicino, who also has been taking care of our uh, soundtrack albums through La La Land Records. Plug, plug. Anyway, <laughs> Mike did a phenomenal job going in and putting together the, the the elements for the mix, including the amazing discovery of the ADR tapes. One thing we did not have 22, 21 years ago was the ADR recordings, and so much of this film was looped. 
Yeah. So much of it had to be looped because of the projectors and everything else. And so many dubs in the audio and the rush and everything else. There was a lot of places in the film where the voices were just muffled mm-hmm. and you really couldn't hear it. And I think the clarity of putting the original elements in digitally and, you know, the editing work of making it so perfect. That goes to Mike and Michael Babcock, who who is our mixer, who Atmos Mixer. And we went into a stage at, at Warner Brothers and we mixed it in there. And again, the, the, the specific goal, this is a 2022, use the best the technology we possibly can to give this film presence and power. The the biggest goal was let's make the film the best it can be, and in that environment, we mixed for a t- for a movie for today, and that doesn't mean bombastic. It just means powerful, using the low levels, the high levels, the atmos to move the, the 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 sound around you. I even said the the wormhole needs to move with you. You need to feel it because for the film to work, it needed every aspect to work. And the sound played such an incredible role in this. And as you said, sounds on the bridge. There was a point where there was too much sound and then there was, you know, not enough. And it needed to have that balance because those sounds to me, and I was in the mix and I was talking specifically about the bridge sounds, they are telemetry. They are sounds that even though Kirk and company are working on the bridge, it's not just random noises. It's telling him that there's something going on. Each mm-hmm. one of the sounds has a meaning. And so if you're just in there, you just recognize that it should found, sound natural and welcoming, like you want to have that information to know what's happening, not inter- interfering with the, 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 the story. So it had to have that balance, which is a direct parallel to the silence that we had before. Yeah. There's so much that was focused in making that sound mix be what it needed to be and carry that role that really helped our highs to be high, which I think helped the slow, the slow periods because you had to recover from the highs is part of what I think the sound helped to do. The other thing that uh, the, one of the things I, f- I wanted to mention, too, is that another goal of the project this time was anything that distracted your enjoyment of the film. There were a number of places where the camera jumped, but it wasn't an intentional jump. Mm-hmm. Those were all removed. The point was to keep to not have anything that would take you out of the movie, anything that would smooth the narrative so that you can enjoy it and not be distracted was carefully adjusted. Like if you want to talk about the the uh, Kirk and, and Scotty and the travel pod stuff, Darren. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, we have a, a couple of those kinds of things uh, there. There's, uh, you know, the famous push in right before Kirk sees uh, uh, the Enterprise itself. We push in on him yeah. and Scotty and, and we, we move up to his face in the original release. There, that's a that's a goofy camera move because it's bumping all over the place and and it shifts a little. Um, we were able to stabilize that and smooth out that movement, so now you don't even have to think about it. It's just there. You're so yeah. captivated. Yeah, yeah, uh, and it's yeah. it's something that no one would notice. You know, as a lot of the the fixes we did. If you don't if you don't know every frame of this movie, you will never notice a, a bunch of the stuff that we did. But that that brings me to my you know favorite section of the film that we were able to do a lot of uh, stuff to, which is the tour around the Enterprise with Scotty and and Kirk and the travel pod. Beautiful. So, spoken like a true of Star course. Trek fan. You know fan. what? I, like, I would I would that, put that I would put that, that sequence, on a loop yeah. for twelve hours if I could. <laughs> yeah, and many well, have. I, I would yeah. hope so because it's 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 yeah. totally yeah. the homecoming of the audience as well. Not only Kirk, but uh, yeah. it it is yeah. our return to a place that we loved. Right. So yeah. we were so lucky to find a ton of the original negative on those shots. And it's amazing to see how those original shots were put together. Um, Because, of course, uh, uh, Trumbull's group didn't use blue screen. They used what's called foreground background matting, which is either the background is lit up white and the foreground is dark or vice versa. But they used that to generate mats to composite the shots. And to be able to see how this was done and uh, appreciate the enormous difficulty they must have had doing this photochemically is unfreaking believable. Because it 
it was hard to do it with our modern tools to get it to look right. But it was a stylistic decision for them because of the beautiful paint job that was on the Enterprise miniature. It would have reflected blue screen everywhere, as ILM found out on mm. Star Trek II. Mm. And there were a lot of holes in the mats because of it that you, that you composited. There were a lot of holes in the mats because it was so difficult to composite. And also because they were shooting these elements so quickly to get them done in time. But it's it, it's still, it's beautiful photography. It's amazing how clear everything looks now. And the the lighting is so well done and, and uh, balanced and realistic to make this. It's just an eight-foot model, folks. But it looks huge on screen. And it's truly an amazing feat for them. And uh, with every new shot that we had to do in this, I was uh, just appreciating the original artist so much for the stuff they had to go through to just get it done is truly amazing. I'll admit I was in tears, you know, as it's panning and, and you fall in love with the Enterprise again. And I think that it, because it's so clear and you see the, the subtleness of the Aztecing and the pearlescent paint and all of the details that go into this model, because it's changed so much from the original Matt Jeffries model, it's it's a tour of this is where we are and brings the audience really into the new narrative of Kirk really doesn't know this ship. The funny thing is that I've talked about this before, but it's the first time that it actually seemed real. It's as if this is the real version of what we were watching in TOS and that TOS was just, you know, a, like a stage play of what actually happened. Bringing those details. So, you know, so into focus, if you pardon the pun, but so clear and so into frame that also, lends uh, kind of like the the audience's attention to seeing things that weren't as clear. Say, now, V'ger in and of itself was this wonderful, organic, almost undefinable essence, this, this power, this structure, this cloud, but not necessarily a ship per se. And in the Paramount Plus ad for Star Trek, the restored 4K director's cut, you saw them say, you know, Star Trek as you've never seen it before. And it shows that wonderful shot of V'ger yeah. defined. The reveal. The reveal of V'ger. Now you have the reveal of V'ger in that scene. And then you also have the reveal of V'ger when Deckard and Ilea finally join and then turn mm-hmm. into this energy burst. And then the Enterprise leaves, you know, the, the ship. Almost kind of like the way that it was on tactical moments earlier, you know, almost the exact same way. Was it very important for that decision to be made? Say, you know what? The audience really needs to see this defined version of V'ger for the The, very first time. I'll I'll address this one because there there were – we had discussions as to – uh, as to the orientation of that uh, of that transformation shot Uh, Mm -hmm. in the in the uh, DVD version, we have it oriented sideways. So that you can see the sideways view of V'ger. But uh, we were talking about it and we were realizing that, okay, the, we have seen the tactical of it on the screen. And so this was a good way to represent it. But also, when you realize the orientation of the Enterprise inside V'ger, and if the Enterprise is coming toward us, then that's that's the orientation that it should be so that the enterprise is just moving forward as V'ger dissipates around it. So that was the, that was the reasoning behind that. And uh, it, it seems, you know, extremely logical to me now. Uh, but uh, it was, it, it was sort of a difficult thing to sort of sort out and, and realize, Oh yeah, well that, that makes sense. And that's why we should see it that way. But uh, the great thing about the, uh, the director's edition was I, I, that's one of my favorite shots uh, because it ties everything together. It ties the bits and pieces that we've seen of V'ger as it's transforming and the, then this glorious uh, explosion of light and uh, energy for that final uh, shot of the Enterprise coming toward us. It's just beautiful. And I'm, I'm glad that we could sort of seam those things together. I think even before that, we the, the modification we made to the shot outside V'ger where it didn't quite hit exactly that it was the the energy coming out from the surface 
that the little enhancement that we did to just make it show that the that the wave from the inside is coming out, there's a subtle change there too that further helped to tell the yeah. story better that we were talking about, those subtle changes. But in that whole sequence, it was just nice that now it, it seems to have really worked that they all flow together. I also think originally we were it was sideways was uh, to show more of the ship, but we already did show it. So it makes more sense the way the, where it was now, especially the way that it was traveling to the Earth with the tactical end where it was uh, in, in placement. So, but I still think it's a beautiful job there. I like it too. <laughs> let, let me ask you this, you know, presumably you've got uh, at least a couple of different audiences for this movie. You have the people who back in 1979, this was their first time seeing Star Trek on a big screen. Then you've got an audience who in, you know, probably 2009, that might've been their first Star Trek on a big screen. And they've grown up with that and, and a, a whole new slate of Star Trek. What, what are your goals for this? Like, who do you want this to reach? What do you want them to discover about this movie? Well, the number one goal of the film, even in 1979 was to introduce Star Trek to new audiences. And the thing is, there's, it's interesting. There's two statements that people have made that are very, very powerful to me. One is they, those who love the film are thrilled because they're now able to tell their friends who have never seen it, go watch the film now. And the thing that, I mean, it's odd. People have, uh, people have said this to me with tears in their eyes at the convention. I don't have to make an excuse for it anymore. <laughs> I don't have to say there are slow places, just stick mm. with it. And yeah. that, and then there were also people who saw it for the first time who said, I really love this. And somebody came up to me at the Chicago convention that said, I just went back and watched Star Trek two right after. And I said, you know, I'm more cerebral. I actually really enjoyed motion picture more. Hmm. Two was more like an action picture, but the fact that there's so much to think about and that it's leaving people with a lot to dwell upon, to think, to consider is dramatic. Plus it's more timely today. It's all about technology being cold without humanity. And you say that in 1979 and everyone has calculators and typewriters, that's technology <laughs> for them and a telephone. Now we have these things and, you know, everybody's walking around with it. It resonates more with today's audiences than ever before. So I want everybody to see it. And I would like to see more promotion uh, uh, just with the fans getting out there to get people who don't even know Star Trek to come in and look at this for the first time. And that's what it was designed to be. The introduction to Star Trek for everybody in 79, it still is an introduction as a good movie for this uh, change. The other thing that I wanted to say, um, because it really means so much to me and with every project, something really is surprising with the responses from the fans. I think even you guys have said it. I have had more people say, that watching the director's edition now brought them back to the first time they saw the film. And it's weird. You think 40 some odd years later and they're saying, I felt like the kid who was in the theater when I was nine, 13, 12, you know, just seeing it for the first time and to capture that feeling. And it's because at that time you didn't know what was going to happen, whether or not it was going to be good, better. It's a new experience for them, and they're just so thrilled, and that means the world to me. And just to be able to, I mean, look, I, the fondest goal would have been that it would reach where it is, and I didn't think we were there, but we are. And thank you, Darren, and thank you, Mike Medicino, and certainly thank you, Bob, and thank you, Paramount, because people seem to get the film and don't feel any of the, the burden of before. It's, and that's precious to me that they're saying just for the first time. It's kind, they, they're all everyone's the, talking the about. The magic it. is it's kind of, it exists now as the film that we thought it could be then. I think that's the- It's what you thought you were seeing the first time for the first time. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's weird. We've always said that this was the completion of the film, but it's now everybody else saying it. It's like, what were we watching before is the weird comment. And I'm so proud of that, that, I, that our goal and our focus of reaching that has, has put it at that level that I think everyone should be able to watch it and enjoy it. And I, 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 I couldn't be happier. 
as you were saying that about uh, part of the film's thesis uh, around technology and the the compassion of humanity and how these things have to be in balance, how these things have to work. I'm thinking that the you know what we've all seen in this movie now is uh, kind of a tribute to that in the respect that you have used state-of-the-art current technology. You've used the power of all the computers at your disposal to actually make this movie more human. The One of the greatest revelations for me sitting in the audience was the characters felt more real. They felt more alive. And I think that is partly because of the technology that you used. It was the color grading. It was the enhanced resolution of things. It was the better sound because of the ADR and the better mix you were able to produce. So all of that made this feel much more flesh and blood Mm -hmm. in a way that it had never felt before, even in the dozens of times that I've seen it. It, I said human. Yeah. It isn't about the technology, even all the tools. It's not about the technology. It's about having that human connection. Yeah. You know, and having that human adventure in what we're saying, but it's even the, you you mentioned the color grading, that was that was carefully balanced to draw your attention to the person that's talking. To because that's what good color balance will do is that there was so much attention being made to make the colors support the story mm-hmm. that it was never done for the film. So so that's where I found it compelling that I just, you know, a lot of the times when we're doing the colors that, okay, are your eyes going to the right place? Are you focused there? Because one of the complaints that, that people had was about the uniforms being, you know, not, not to spec. The real reason yeah. that the uniforms had a problem because they're very much like the cage, just, they're just uniforms was that there was yeah. so, so little going on that you, you weren't drawn to any particular part of the screen. You had to look at something to find interesting. Hmm. So people studied the uniforms is what I understood. It's, 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 <laughs> you know, the, the comment 20 years ago in a review, they even made the uniforms better. I had to figure out what they meant. And I finally realized it was because you were, com- you were carried into the story. But now when you're with every shot, as I said, you have to be focusing on the person. It takes away the importance of something like the uniforms. When I watched the streaming for the first time, I looked and I said to myself, the uniforms are Pale blue? <laughs> yeah. What? what? They're not slate gray? Um, that's aside the point. You know, you both of you have been these custodians, this guardian of this film for so long, and you've obviously assembled a massive amount of information, whether it's the original negatives, original film elements, all of the history behind what went into this film. If we know anything about a property uh, with studios, they are going to release another version of this film. At possibly when you are no longer guardians of this material, what can you what can you offer the next generation of filmmakers, the next generation of historians or reconstructionist archivists with their material that you have to say, can you make this better? Mm-hmm. What can you give to them that will guide them along this way? Well, there's. There's a couple of interesting things about that. First of all, you realize that's 20 years because this film has a 20-year cycle. <laughs> the years after the theatrical, we go and we do this. 20 years. So you know, 20 years from now, there'll be something else. Yeah. Well, there's two interesting things about that. Number one, um, with all the d- grain reduction and all the grain changes, there's going to be uh, there's going to be better tools. So a lot of the the film elements will need to be re- reprocessed. So it's important that the that the elements exist without degraining, which they do. But there's something else. Just as they discovered HDR, you know, uh, HDR with in other words, the fact that that uh, negative contains so much more actual image than was able to be seen. There's some people now that are looking at celluloid and they're beginning to look and they think that they've discovered that it was actually recording light field information, not photographic information. And light field is kind of Blade Runner. When you're sitting there and you're looking at a photo and you can get different angles and see uh-huh. information, it wasn't light field is uh, boy. I'll try. I'll try to reduce the science story, science science aspect of this. You're not seeing anything with your eyes. You're seeing what light hits. Your eyes are picking up what light hits. When you record light field, it means you're recording all the light. And if you move around, you'd see wherever that light was hit. The idea is that there's some belief now that there's in scanning a film emulsion that light field may have been recorded, which means every film that we have in existence could be 3D. 
actual 3D and shot that way wow. on set. But we're not even close to being able to present that. But imagine if this actually is a discovery. This is just some things that I've heard the beginnings of that they're actually having some discovery that this may in fact have been the case. We could be watching this film and every film in 3D which goes back to the question of, great, well, then, Darren, we're going to have to have those digital effects redone because those will have to be 3D because they were an emulsion. And have or to have, VR. Yeah. 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 You know, and, and all of those concepts are things that, you know, I'd like to see where we're going. And I love even HDR because people don't realize that to be able to say to you, every film you've ever fallen in love with, you could see it better and more beautiful than ever before, used to be the old comment of, excuse my French, then out. Whatever the quality is you start with, you're not going to get anything much better. Thanks to technology and discoveries, we are. So now every film that you've ever seen can look better because of HDR. Imagine if Lightfield was in fact in the, in the film element, we could have 3D versions of a movie. And then you'll have the debate going on, well, it was never intended right, to be right. 3D. So, And this is where I want to go back, and I'll say, I'll say to you about this film on the record, Bob said, don't let anything stand in the way of the best presentation. Yeah. So if Light, whoever's listening, <laughs> if Lightfield is available, let Motion Picture go to Lightfield's <laughs> version in 3D, because I'm sure that'll even be still before the movie takes place. <laughs> the irony would be actually if this was the start of a holodeck novel. That's true. Yeah, yeah, that's motion true. picture starts holography. Yeah. Well, maybe you'll step into our room sometime and they'll pre- and you'll be presented. You'll be in, you'll be in the rec deck. And there's a lot of technology to net today with uh, NVIDIA that you take a bunch of photos from different angles and it can recreate sets. Uh, you know, at some point, I've always had this dream of being able to see a film like a, like a video game where you're walking through it, in this case VR, where a film could actually take place in front of you and you could be walking through the envi- entire environment. And nowadays, with the creation of uh, digital sets by just a few photos, it's, I, I imagine someday, someday we'll be able to see that, except you'll be in the rec deck while things are happening on the bridge. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Let, let me, as we're coming up to the end here, I've got just a couple of last questions for you. One is that I wonder if both of you can kind of speak to philosophically what you just brought up, David, which is, okay, there there is a school of thought that says whatever was committed to film, whatever a director or editor or distributor, some, you know, combination thereof, <laughs> holy or unholy, that is the film. And and that is what we should expect to see. And then, you know, earlier in the interview, you mentioned that George Lucas in the 90s came out with his newly enhanced versions of the original Star Wars trilogy, which to this day are still hotly debated and derided. And there are many elements that we wish we could just sort of mentally go back and erase. So for either of you, you know, where is the sweet spot? I, I feel like this TMP edition is the sweet spot, but but talk to me about that. Do you feel that these are are mutable pieces of art that can be revisited and enhanced over time, or is there a point too far? Let me let me start this off. I think the main question is intent. What is the intent of the original work, and is any are, are any changes that are made later? Uh, changing that intent. I think if they change the intent, then that's not a good thing. I think that if if it is enhancing the ability of that work to convey the intent, then I think it is a good thing. Uh, you know, I, I severely disagree with the, uh, the choice that uh, uh, Lucasfilm made to uh, not offer the original versions of those films. And you can argue that, well, it, it, it belongs to the creator of them. Well, then give me my money back because uh, I paid for it several mm-hmm. times. So uh, yes. I think there is a contract between the audience and the purveyor of this art. And I think that uh, if, if the audience uh, likes a certain version of the work, then it shouldn't be denied to them. But you know, if the if the artist wants to offer something more, then by all means. If the audience wants to wants to take that, then good for you. 
couple of things about that. Number one, I'll, we, we, I think we have to address even, I want to answer this question by first addressing one of the things you said, Darren. People embrace what they saw and it becomes a part of their history and their comfort zone. And this is where the theatrical version of motion picture is still available in 4K. Anybody who doesn't, who, who wants what they grew up with because it's like home cooking, it's, mm-hmm. it's what they're familiar with and what they love. It's still a piece of history. And whether or not we feel it's finished or otherwise, and we believe that this is the preferred version and we want people to make that choice, we understand that that has a certain amount of personal uh, value, just like the special longer version did to people. And that ver- the, the, the theatrical needs to be out there for that reason. And we've uh, even back then we included uh, the scenes from the special longer version so people could see it. For me, I take a little bit more of a, of a audience member perspective and that's that I want to be entertained and I want to enjoy the film. I want to enjoy the story and where I see it is whatever makes my experience as a filmmaker, a film viewer, an audience member, the best experience with that movie that it can possibly be. That's what I want. I want to feel that exhilaration. I want to feel that tense. I want at the end of the wormhole, I want to just, and not feel like it's foreign, but I want that experience to be there. And I don't want it to be so different that it doesn't feel familiar, but I want it to be amplifying and just making that experience the best possible. It's the same thing with VR movie theaters. I want the best seat and I want the best position to sit there. And, you know, everything at home is a scale model of a movie theater anyway. You're never getting that massive experience on a big screen. Well, as we move into VR and people are watching in VR, I care more about it being giant, clear, crisp, clean, like that big experience. And anything that, that makes your movie-going experience be the best experience it can be is what's right. And that's where the decisions were made with Director's Edition. And the Star Wars Special Editions, there are things that were in that film that were to satisfy, I believe, George you know, his goals, Mm -hmm. not what the audience needed. And that's where it matters with something throwing you out of the the film because it's so unfamiliar, but it, or CG work that doesn't look like it matches is a big deal where it just takes you out of that experience. And all that matters is just being able to sit down and enjoy the picture, which is why I'm so thrilled. People are enjoying director's edition today because that was above and beyond your enjoyment of the movie your thrill of seeing the movie and being able to share it with your friends and new people being able to see it is exactly where i think it needs to be and is exactly where the target was and i pray to god we hit we hit it so (laughs) i'm so touched by people are saying Every episode of Mission Log, when we examine an episode of Star Trek uh, or movie or whatever, uh, we're looking at it for the morals, meanings, messages. What is the meaning? What is the heart? So I pose it to both of you. When you look at the motion picture, what does it mean to you? What is your takeaway, your moral meaning message? I love the optimism of it. I love the, 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 the closure of the film has me walking away floating which is the human adventures just beginning. I've always loved the optimism of Star Trek. And to me, it's always just the fact that it's the people. This is a story that if you took the actors and the interplay between the characters away, you'd end up with a really cold movie. I'm saying if you had different people or a different script, Mm -hmm. you have to have the people interacting with each other and the subtlety that's in there. And it's, again, going back to, you know, if you didn't have social media, this would be nothing more than a communication device between two different people, phones and technology. It goes back to nothing, no technology is as valuable as being able to talk to the people around you. And that's personal. And that means something. And it really is about people above technology in an odd way, parallel to classic Star Trek, which was always about the story versus technology. At that time, they didn't have as much of the budget to do it, but it carried on to the movie. Here we have a big budget film, but it's still about the people and the inter- and the relationships. And I wish more people would learn more about how that is in, in storytelling. You know, plus we had, you know, 
our our character of the Enterprise. She's more gorgeous than ever before. My outlook on this is that Star Trek The Motion Picture is about that question of can you go home again? And I think the final answer is yes, you can. It's going to be difficult, but you can. And and the good thing about uh, about the film, in my mind, is that there's no villain in it. There's an antagonist, something that we don't understand. And that has always been sort of the core Star Trek magic that I enjoy, is that uh, anything we don't understand called a thing uh, is, uh, is just something that we need to find out about and explore, to explore strange new worlds, seek out new civilizations this is this is the core of it and the journey that our crew goes through in the film is that they're all coming from different places in their lives they aren't the same people at the beginning of the film that we remember from star trek the original series but by the time they go through the turmoils and challenges and adventure of the film they're back to where we remember them and I think that's one of the loveliest things that this film brings to me. I could not have said it better. Thank you very much, both of you, for your insights and your time. And um, anybody who is listening to this who has not yet checked out the 4K Director's Edition of Star Trek The Motion Picture on Paramount+, Plus, or if you're planning on going to see, if you haven't planned yet to go see the Fathom event, absolutely do so. It's, uh, it's phenomenal. And we have the September physical media release that has a lot of great surprises for you guys. Oh, excellent. All right. Can't wait. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you would like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Schabel. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.